Well, it's a great privilege to get to teach the Word of God and be with you in that way uh, today. I haven't preached for a year and four months, so it's been quite a while since I have uh, shared that privilege with you. So it's an honor. Uh, when Steve uh, emailed me, actually, I was in the Middle East last May, and he emailed if I would be able to preach the last week in July, and I uh, was able to clear my calendar and, and be available, and when I got back from the Middle East, I, with some trepidation, said, so what am I preaching on? And because I knew it was a spiritual app series and the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices in our lives, and I was scared to death he was going to tell me I had to preach on fasting or something, and I knew that wasn't a super strong strength in my life, and I didn't want to really have to preach on that. And so I was thankful when he said gratitude, uh, and I'm amazed that uh, Steve could preach on fasting last week and actually make me want to fast more in my life. It was t totally... Uh, fabulous sermon, as have been the sermons by Brian and Susan throughout this series. And, and as I've reflected on this whole series on spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, spiritual apps, it seems to me it's really a series all about our souls. Uh, it's, an, it's a goal of this series that our souls would be healthy places. Maybe we could even call it soul therapy, these different kind of apps these different kind of spiritual practices in our lives. Um, I have a bunch of flowers around my house and I go out every night and I water my flowers in my yard because I love my flowers and I call it flower therapy, literally. It's what it is to me to get out and water them and see they're growing and they're happy and they're blessing me and they're beautiful. And I get to visit with neighbors that are walking by and I, I just truly, it's therapy for me. And I realized that my flowers are healthy and happy because I fertilize them a lot. They love me because I feed them. And they love me because I water them a lot. And because they are cared for, they are healthy. And I think it is the same with your soul and mine. Our souls will be healthy when we care for our souls. I've been influenced by uh, Dallas Willard's writings, and one thing that particularly helped me was to read his teaching on the soul. Because after all, what is the soul? That's a pretty nebulous sounding word, and it's hard to nail it down. But as I've come to understand, the soul is that place inside of us that is connected to God and that is influenced by God. And so in a very real sense, the soul is the command center of your life and mine. And it means that, therefore, the choices that I make with my will are influenced by God or they're not based on the health of my soul. Uh, the way I respond emotionally in life to situations or individuals uh, may go one way or another, in some way based on command central, the soul, the health of my soul, the health of my walk with God. The soul is terribly important because it has such an impact on the way you do life and the way I do life. And I, I ask you as I ask myself, so how goes it with your soul? How goes it with your soul? The Bible is full of literally hundreds 
of scriptures where the word soul is used, where God references the soul, mentions the soul in one way or another. And some of those verses I want to share with you right now because they're people describing the state of their soul. And when we say, how goes it with your soul? The psalmist in Psalm 62 is saying, sort of talking to his soul, yes, my soul, find rest in God. Find rest in God. Or another time, another poet in the psalm, Psalm 6 says, my soul is in deep anguish. Command central is hurting deeply. Or in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, my soul is weary with sorrow. And anyone who has walked through deep sorrow knows that that is an exhausting experience. And command central for that person is, is a place of sorrow. Or Mary, when she gets the great news from the angel that she is going to get to be the mother of God, wow, um, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. What a privilege. Her soul, command central, is overwhelmed with praising God. But not long later, after Jesus is born and they take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, Simeon speaks to her at the temple and warns her, a sword is going to pierce your soul, the center of your being, that command central. So how goes it with your soul? When uh, Steve asked me to preach on gra the gratitude, um, spiritual discipline, uh, I have to admit at first I thought, wow, you know, I've just never considered gratitude as a spiritual discipline. And so since May, I've been thinking about that fact that it is a spiritual discipline and more and more and more, it makes total sense to me that gratitude is a spiritual discipline. Because in a very real sense, I increasingly understand that a grateful heart is a way to strengthen a soul. A grateful heart increases my spiritual muscles, if you will. The psalmist in Psalm 103 understood this implicitly, and he writes, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. And the soul in that, in that psalm just praises and praises and praises for 22 straight verses, praising God for who he is. The soul is strengthened when we are grateful. Often, whether it's in your life or mine, gratitude is not hard. It, in fact, it's like, well, why would we call that a discipline? It was really easy to, yesterday to say, oh, God, this is an amazing day you made. It's gorgeous out. It's got to be really easy for an Olympic athlete as they walked in that opening ceremony on, on Friday uh, evening to say, wow, I get to be in the Olympics. Unbelievable. Thank you. Some gratitude is, is really easy. And you can see that even in the pages of Scripture. I mean, it was really easy for the Israelites when they crossed through the Red Sea and escaped slavery to say, thank you, God. It was really easy for the Israelites when they, under Solomon, finally built this temple, this gorgeous place to worship God. Thank you, God, we have our very place to meet with you. 
It's easy when Jesus in the New Testament raised Lazarus from the dead. Wow, thank you, Jesus. It was easy when Jesus touched a leper and healed him. Thank you, Jesus. It's easy when Jesus gave sight to a blind man. Thank you, Jesus. It's easy when Jesus fed 5,000 people with hardly any bread and hardly any fish. Thank you, Jesus. Some gratitude is really easy. And that caused me to think through scripture of one place where it became very easy for the Israelites yet again to thank God. Um, they were, had been in exile in Babylon for 70 long years, and some people had begun to make their way back to Jerusalem and rebuild houses and start to rebuild their lives. And Ezra went back, and they rebuilt the temple, even though it wasn't nearly as grand as the previous one. And but uh, Nehemiah was called by God to go back and help them build the walls around Jerusalem. Um, you and I know that in ancient times, how did they protect themselves? They protected with walls. And if you didn't have a wall around your city, you were incredibly vulnerable. So the wall was very, very important to Jerusalem as a means of defense. So God calls Jeremiah to go back and lead the charge for that, and Jeremiah does, and it's, it's a rough go. He's got opposition from within. He's got opposition from without. But amazingly, in 52 days, the wall is completed. And it says uh, in Nehemiah 6, so on October 2nd, the wall was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun. And when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. The people inside the walls knew it had been a God thing. The people outside the walls knew it had been a God thing. And this great celebration was planned to celebrate the building of the wall and a choir was formed that would march north and another choir was formed that would march south along the wall. And the priests followed with their trumpets blaring out and celebrating and everybody praised God. And the scriptures tell us that the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far, far away because sometimes it's easy to thank God. It was easy to thank God when we built this new sanctuary we call the worship center. Uh, a lot of us worshiped in Cedar Hall for a lot of years and there's a picture of how full that place was and how it used to have a balcony and uh, we worshiped there and it got to be really, really crowded and the hall's even more crowded and many of you can remember how filled with joy we were when we this building was completed and we had this new spacious sanctuary and the cross was put on the outside and we had this new place to meet with God. Or you can remember certainly just two years ago, not even quite two years ago, when we finished building Broadway Commons after not a 52-day effort but a much longer effort than that, that amazing building where we can share Christ with the city in so many different kinds of ways. And we gathered and we celebrated and we were filled with joy because sometimes it's really easy to thank God. Other times, um, gratitude doesn't feel so easy. It doesn't come quickly. But frankly, when it does come quickly, it's good practice to create grateful hearts and thank God for this and thank God for that and throughout the day to thank God. Because when gratitude is more difficult, the practice of thanking God along the way uh, will come in handy. 
But there are times when gratitude doesn't flow easily. It doesn't flow easily when your team at school loses a game that's really important to you. It doesn't flow easily when you have a car wreck. Uh, it doesn't flow easily when somebody dear to you is diagnosed with cancer. Gratitude does not flow easily when finances are stressed or things are not going well at work. Gratitude doesn't flow easily when somebody we love dies. There are times that uh, gratitude is hard, whether it's because strained relationships just refuse to get any better or because something very important to us went awry. And so as I've pondered this whole concept of a discipline of gratitude, I'm aware that there are times gratitude is a discipline. It's not natural for us. And that took me to a scripture in 1 Thessalonians that I've heard for all the years, I think, that I've been a, a follower of Christ, which goes like this, 1 Corinthians 5.18, Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you, who belong to Christ Jesus. Be thankful in all circumstances. And it's an imperative command in the Greek. I mean, that's not just a maybe it's a good idea. It's you're commanded to do this. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've been confused by that verse over the years like I have been. Or maybe worse yet, you've had people hurt you with that verse and in the midst of a really painful divorce or a painful other situation in your life, somebody said, you need to be thankful for that. And it caused me to do a little bit of analyzing that verse and what is, what is God really saying through the Apostle Paul there? So I went and studied well, what was going on in Thessalonica, the place to whom he had written the letter, when he wrote that, when he said, be thankful in all circumstances, what were their circumstances? Was it a time of easy gratitude where they just finished building a church and everybody's celebrating? Nope, it wasn't. It was a time when things were not going well. It was a time where it would be very difficult to be thankful. Because uh, Thessalonica was... A, a, an area where people worship Greek gods, they worship the gods of Egypt, they worship the Roman emperor, which was required by people that were part of the Roman Empire, and they even had coins that uh, had the face of the emperor and said divine on it. And so these Christians uh, come along, or a, a group rises up and become Christians and is a growing movement, and they are seen as a tremendous threat. They're a threat to the economy for all the people that buy the idols and all the other stuff to worship these other pagan gods. Uh, they're a threat to the political stability above all of Thessalonica because after all, we're a Roman province and we need to keep things really good with Rome and these people don't worship Caesar, we need to worship Caesar. And so they were persecuting the Christians a lot. So when... Paul wrote that letter and said, be thankful in all circumstances. It wasn't a time of easy gratitude. So what was he meaning? What does that verse mean for you and for me today? Uh, and it seems to me it all hinges on a preposition. It says be thankful in all circumstances. It doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances. He wasn't saying, be thankful, Thessalonians, that you are being thrown in prison and all manner of persecution is coming your way. 
Don't, you don't have to be thankful for that. You don't have to be thankful that your loved one just died. You don't have to be thankful for that cancer diagnosis. But what it does mean is we are commanded, an imperative command, to be confident in God even in the midst of a hard place. To be thankful that God is in the midst of that difficult place with us, that we are not alone. And the fascinating thing about what becomes a discipline of gratitude that even in this you're here, God, is that it changes us from the inside. And let me demonstrate to that to you uh, through Psalm 42. It's a very interesting psalm, and it's typical of a lot of psalms, where the psalmist, the poet that's writing this, is kind of up and he's down. He's mad at God, he's angry about difficult circumstances, and then he puts his hope in God. He's angry, and then he's confident in God. And it says this. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? And he's hurting. And then he turns to God, in a sense, and he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And hope begins to rise in his heart. And then he starts yelling at God again. Deep calls the deep and the roars of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. In other words, life is hard. And then he remembers who God is. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And then he goes back to lament. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And then ends with, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's this interesting thing, as I look at the psalmist, that what happens is that when he's upset, and then turns to God, something soothes his soul. Something changes on the inside. Upset again, then back to confidence in God. Back to gratitude for who the person of God is. And this is a very real and true statement, I believe. The discipline of gratitude pushes us to God. It reorients our perspective on life, and it mysteriously soothes our soul. It's a discipline, but it pushes us to God, and it reorients our perspective, and somehow in the midst of looking at who God is and praising God and thanking God for who he is, our souls are soothed. I, I think we find this kind of an experience in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas have been uh, planting missionary ch churches all over the place, and they planted one in Philippi, and the church is going well, and the authorities get very, very, very upset with them because once again, people aren't buying the idols. Once again, people are going a new direction, and nobody likes it. And so Paul and Silas, as the ones that brought this to town, um, are taken to prison. And they're not just taken to prison. They are beaten, and they are flogged. And, and we need to understand that flogging is that awful whip horrible whip, 40 lashes of the whip, 
And it often would have bones or sharp pieces attached to the end of it. And so to be flogged and to be beaten was to have a completely raw and horrible, horribly painful back. Hideous torture, really. And as if that weren't bad enough, Paul and Silas are put in stocks in the prison to make sure there's no way they can escape. And if you were to read Acts 16, you find this shocking deal, and it's that Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praying to God. Declaring their confidence in God Declaring praises of God in the midst of an abjectly awful situation. No pain medications in sight, that's for sure. But I would suggest to you that in the process of singing hymns and praying to God, their souls were changed, their souls were soothed, and comfort came to them in a new way. And as I read the pages of Scripture, uh, for me, and maybe it's different for you, but the most graphic place where I see praising and thanking God in the midst of disaster is through the prophet Jeremiah. Um, You'll remember that we studied Jeremiah's life a couple years ago, and he's a man that followed God for a lifetime and against all odds, where everybody in Jerusalem didn't listen to him, and he kept saying, repent, turn back to God, and they ran profligately in all of their sin. And He kept warning them, if you keep this up, there's going to be a judgment, and the judgment came. And it came in the form of the Babylonians uh, coming down from the north and swarming in, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem People are starving to death. No food can get in. Mothers, it says, uh, have babies and children dying in their arms. Eventually, they break through the walls of Jerusalem, and we find that they're killing people. They're slaughtering the streets. They make their way to the temple. Uh, They plunder the temple. They kill priests and kill anybody they can find in the temple. They finally find the king and his sons, and they kill the king's sons right in front of him, and then they... Uh, poke out his eyes somehow so that the last image that this king has in his ability to see is of his own sons being executed. And then the king is put in jail for the rest of his life. Um, and, and in the aftermath of the hideous things that went on in Jerusalem during that siege and that um, defeat by the, at the hands of the Babylonians, The prophet Jeremiah writes this book called Lamentations, the laments, the grief of a prophet. And and reading the chapters of of Lamentations is like, wow, the suffering of the people is just profound and washes over you. But then Jeremiah, in the middle of these laments, makes this loud declaration of faith and confidence and gratitude to God that is probably familiar to most of you. He says this, Lamentations 3.21, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Praising and thanking God in the midst of catastrophe. 
thanking God that even in this, his mercies will be seen. Even in this, his compassion will be revealed. Even in this, he will be faithful. No matter what, Jeremiah declared his gratitude and trust in God. And so it is that blessings and good things can move us to gratitude, but they are not the root of it. The root is God. The root is God's presence in our lives and in the world. The root is God's love and his care in our lives. Gratitude says, I will trust you even in this. Uh, Over the years, I've talked a few times from this um, pulpit about my husband's suicide 11 years ago. Um, You've heard me talk about the extreme pain from that, the horror of it, the shock of it, the financial devastation of it. But I can tell you that from the very first moments of being told about this nightmare, I could see God. I could see the mercy of God. I could see the presence of God. You see, it wasn't just any old policeman that took the report off of the whatever reader thing they get that there was a suicide up in Washington State. It was the only policeman I knew in the whole police force of the Salem Police Department. And he goes to our church and he came and he got one of our pastors and one of my best friends. And it was the three of them that arrive at my front door with the news. Because the compassion of God is real. The presence of God is real in the midst of whatever circumstance we face. And the next morning as I was um, opening my Bible and I happened to be reading through the book of Psalms at the time. And I came to what was my next psalm because frankly, for months I could only live in the Psalms because I could weep weep with them and cry out with them because I felt the same way. Um, And I came to the next Psalm for that day's reading and it was Psalm 146 where it says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over and sustains the fatherless and the widow. And it was as if those were highlighted, written in red and blinking neon lights to me. That, Barbara, in the midst of this, I know you. In the midst of this unspeakable tragedy, I will watch over your children. In the midst of this pain, you can trust me. And a mysterious thing would happen literally day after day after day. That as I kept seeing the evidence of God which shouted at me day in and day out, hope began to rise. Oh, it didn't rise in a day. It didn't rise to a big place in weeks or even months. But hope kept rising. And because I'm a pastor, I often get to journey with people through dark places. And just in the last few weeks, I've, I've journeyed a bit with a family whose adult daughter is locked down in addictions that have wrecked her life and Uh, profoundly affected her family for a long time. Uh, Just in the last week, I was with a woman whose husband died. She shattered. Just this last week, I was um, with a friend whose mother died. 
Just this last week, I was spent an hour and a half one evening with a um, young woman, barely out of her teens, who is begging to have her life end. And this I can tell you, in all of those dark and difficult places, it was not Jerusalem, it's not the slaughter of the Babylonians, but it's real pain and real time in Salem, Oregon. These families were seeing God one place after another, seeing the mercy of God, the provision of God, the grace of God, the care of God. And when you see that and you start thanking God for that, that gratitude has a way of changing our perspective and moving us to a place of hope. Gratitude is not a denial of pain. It is not a denial of suffering. It is not a denial of disappointment in life or with life. But the discipline of gratitude is a declaration of confidence that the living God is with me in the midst of it all. And the living God is not too weak to help me. And the living God is not distant and uncaring. He has deep and profound compassion for my reality. So I ask, how goes it with your soul? How goes it with your soul? Do you find your soul is at a place of bitterness, anger, fear, desperation? Because there is a living God who longs to move in, come into the deep waters, and put hope in your soul. And it strikes me that as we end this series on spiritual apps, you know, you and I have a choice. We could like put what we've learned on a shelf somewhere, or I hope that over the next days, weeks, months, and years, that we will say, you know, I, I wanna listen to God better and start moving in that direction. You know, I, I think I will fast um, and start moving in that direction. You know, I really want to uh, put Bible memorization in my life in a new way and start moving in that direction. You know, gratitude, I wanna look for ways to thank God. And I pray that in these next weeks and months and years, we will find that as we fertilize and water our souls, that they become more and more strong and more and more beautiful.